It's good to uh, have the privilege and heavy responsibility to share with you this morning God's Word. Um, I want to start off by saying I don't think that I will be sharing anything with you this morning that you don't already know, as long as you have been in the Lord for a little while. I don't think you're going to hear anything new from me this morning. My purpose is to remind you, and uh, I'm in good company because Peter, in his second letter, in the first chapter, he talks about a number of things, and he says that as long as I am in this flesh, I am going to remind you of these things. And it's just something about our sinful human nature that we do continually need to be reminded of truth that gives us life. And so my hope with what I have to share with you this morning, is that I will be able to encourage you in your walk in the Lord. And uh, we are going to be in Hebrews chapter 12, just two verses. But I'll confess, we're not just going to be in chapter 12, because this beginning part of chapter 12 really is founded on chapter 11. And so we're going to be looking at quite a bit of what what is in the previous chapter this morning. But these two verses are our our ultimate focus. So I'm going to ask you once again, if you are able, to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you that Jesus Christ was willing to endure the cross for us so that we might be reconciled to you. Lord, we ask as we look into your word this morning that your spirit would illumine our minds and hearts and teach us that we might be faithful in our walk for you as we anticipate the joy that awaits us as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. When I was a kid, uh, athletic competitions always awarded prizes only to the first, second, and third place. If you came in fourth or later, there was no prize. There was no recognition. Uh, This was true if you were six years old, if you were 16 years old, if you were 26 years old, or older. Somewhere along the line, someone got the idea that it's bad, especially for kids, to be considered a loser if they participate, and if and when they participate in any kind of athletic competition. So by the time my grandkids started playing sports, they started handing out prizes just for participating. (laughs) Uh, To people of my generation, when we saw that, we thought, wait a minute, there's something doesn't seem to be right here. This is a bit excessive and, in our minds, out of touch with reality, we thought. 
One of the things that I had to learn, and I had to learn it a lot as a young kid, was how to be a good loser. Because <laughs> I lost a lot. One comedian took that even a little bit further. He joked about the reality that even the silver medalist is just the number one loser. <clears throat> well, in our text today, the author of Hebrews uses the athletic metaphor of a race to describe the believer's challenge in this life to pursue to the end the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ. Paul uses the same metaphor, admonishing us to run the race to win. Obviously, the kind of race that both the writer of Hebrews and Paul are talking about, they're not talking about a sprint, they're not talking about even a medium distance run or a relay, but they're talking about a marathon, running a marathon. And what is encouraging is that in this marathon of the life of faith, all who participate and endure will receive the prize, unlike earthly athletic competition where there is only one winner. So I guess those people who want to give the kids, all the kids, trophies for participating, maybe they're a little bit closer to the truth than uh, we thought. So as we walk through this text today, I want to consider four necessities for running the race to the end. Each of these four begins with the letter P, so I hope that it will be easier for you to remember what we are going to be looking at this morning. So four necessities, and they all begin with the letter P. The first necessity is participants. The second necessity is prize. The third necessity is perseverance. And the fourth necessity is perfecter. Okay, so are you with me? Participants, prize, perseverance, and perfecter. Obviously, you can't have a race without participants. And the writer of Hebrews has been establishing the argument throughout this long letter that a person becomes a participant in this race by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his or her sins and then remaining and continu or continuing in that faith. And in chapter 11, as I mentioned earlier, he clearly depicts for us what true faith in Christ is by describing the faith of men and women recorded in the Old Testament, beginning with Abel, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, the first human beings, and uh, um, down to Samuel and King David and the prophets, and then he even ends with many unnamed people who continued in their faith and belonged to God through faith. Now, those people in the Old Testament did not fully understand or fully know the person uh, the, who their faith pointed to. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, he talks about the prophets looking intently, trying to figure out what, what they were even prophesying. But they believed God's promise to provide the remedy for the breach in mankind's relationship with him because of our rebellion. And they held on to that faith to the end of their lives, even though many of them suffered greatly for that faith. 
And so these are the ones that the writer is referring to here in chapter 12 as this great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. The picture being painted here is that those who have already finished the race are seated in the stands and they are now cheering us on in their race. Now, is that literal? Most commentators don't think so. And maybe they're right, but I'm not 100% convinced. But it doesn't really matter because whether it is literal or not, it is meant to be an encouragement to us that those who have gone before us, some who suffered much greater struggles than we have, are examples to us of enduring saints who have already finished their race and they are urging us to continue on in it. They're telling us it is worth it. Don't give up. So let's see what the writer says about how these men and women demonstrated genuine faith. And, and this is important for us to understand, genuine faith in Christ. He begins in Hebrews eleven six by saying this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. True faith begins with believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's where true faith begins. But it goes beyond that. And it, it, if it doesn't go beyond that, then it is not true saving faith. Remember, James said, talks about believing in God, and he says that the demons believe the demons know that God exists, but they're not saved. And so saving faith goes beyond this beginning point of believing that God exists and that he's, he was a rewarder of those who seek him. That, that, at that point, this is really merely just mental assent. And we see a lot of this in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John. There are a number of places, chapter 2 in John, chapter 8 in John, where it talks about people who, quote, believed in Jesus, but then you find out that, well, they didn't really believe. It wasn't really, truly saving faith. And there are many people today who believe that God exists and even believe that he rewards those who seek him who are not followers of Jesus Christ. They are not Christians. They are not participants in the race, not real participants in the race. So let's look at, at I just want to look at a couple of the people that the writer mentions in Hebrews chapter 11 to see what what is true saving faith? How can we know if we have true saving faith? How can we know if we are participants in the race? And I want to begin with Abraham. Verse 8 of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not even knowing where he was going. And then verses 17 through 19, again it talks about Abraham's faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. True faith, saving faith, obeys God. Even when what God commands us to do is difficult or does not even make sense. It is obedience from a heart that trusts that God knows and will do what is best for us within his redemptive plan. So that is a way that we can understand if we have true saving faith. True saving faith obeys God. Also, the writer of Hebrews talks about Moses. Uh, verses 24 through 26, a couple, uh, three of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather, now listen to this, and I know you've heard it if you've, if you've been in the Bible long, but, but it's a, a powerful statement of what true faith is choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. That is incredible to consider the reproach of Christ. In other words, to consider suffering for the name of Jesus Christ as greater value than all the treasures of Egypt, which at that time was an incredibly wealthy nation. For he was looking to the reward. True faith recognizes the emptiness of what this world offers and embraces Christ as greater treasure than all the wealth of the world, even when holding fast to Christ results in suffering. And then the last phrase in 26, verse 26, I think, is an important key to what genuine saving faith is. And that is, uh, is, he says, for he was looking to the reward. Looking to the reward. True faith, the kind of faith that makes us participants in the race, keeps its eye on the prize. So we are participants in the race if we truly have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And if our faith is showing that we are obeying our God and Savior, and if we have are treasuring Christ more greatly than anything else that this glittery world tries to offer us, and we have our focus on the future. If you look at the, I would encourage you to, I just read through uh, Hebrews chapter 11 again before, uh, before coming up here uh, a little bit earlier. And it's just amazing to see the focus of all these examples of faith, that their focus was on what God had promised them, the prize that God had promised them. And so that's what we want to consider right now. The idea of a prize is implicit in the race metaphor. But as I just mentioned, the the it is explicit in all of chapter 11 where he talks about all of these people who put their faith in God and they were looking forward to those promises that God have for them even though they never realized those promises here on earth. So what was the prize that they were running for? 
What is the prize that we are running for if we're in the race? Well, in verse 7 of chapter 11, we read that Noah, quote, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He became the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Righteousness is a big word, and it most often carries a religious uh, sense in our minds. But if you distill it down into its basic meaning, it refers to desiring, thinking, and doing what is right. Desiring, thinking, and doing what is right. And the biblical meaning of righteousness is linked to God's unchanging standard for what is right. God is righteous. God always thinks, desires, and does what is right. But in our sinful nature, we are unrighteous. We desire, think, and do what is wrong. Sometimes we happily do what is wrong. Other times we find ourselves doing what is wrong even to our own dismay and hurt. Like Paul talks about in Romans 7, I do the things that I hate. Why do I do this? Christ came to live the righteous life that we could not live and died in our place so that his righteousness could be imputed to us through faith. That happens when we turn from our sin and turn to Christ in faith. But we still struggle with sin. We still struggle with sin when we, while we're running this race on the earth. I think of Michael Card's song, uh, Joy in the Journey, and the phrase that he has in there, he, he describes Christians as those who belong to eternity, stranded in time, and weary of struggling with sin. Weary of struggling with sin. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of struggling with sin. And what the prize is here, painted, painted for us by talking about Noah with his inheritance of the righteousness which is by faith, the prize that we are going to receive is that we will finally be fully righteous. Everything that we think, that we desire, and that we do will be right. Can you imagine that? I mean, can, can you really imagine that? Can you imagine never having to repent or confess your sin to God ever again? Can you imagine never having to ask someone for forgiveness because you have wronged them? Can you imagine never entertaining a wrong desire or thought, never doing anything wrong? or never failing to do something that's right. Can you imagine living like that? I can't, but I can't wait. I want that. That is the prize. That, that is the first aspect of the prize of what we are running for. We finally will be fully righteous through faith in Jesus Christ because his righteousness will be fully in us. But that's not all just like those commercials on TV. You know, that's not all. In verses 9 through 10 of chapter 11, 
we read that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm kind of editing the verses here, were heirs of the promise for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verses 14 and 16, it says that they were seeking a homeland, a better country, that is, a heavenly one. You know, Jesus' fourth beatitude says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. But you know, we recognize in this life, during this journey that we are on, in this broken world, that if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we know that our full satisfaction will not come in this world. It will, we, we, we are going to continue, as I said, to struggle with sin. But the prize at the finish line is not simply my own perfect righteousness, but a place where the community of those made righteous in Christ will live together in the presence of God who redeemed them. That's the prize. It is the new heaven and the new earth. It is the new Jerusalem, the city where God himself will live among us. As Peter says now, we are strangers and aliens on this earth, but we have a homeland that awaits us when we finish the race. And we're looking for that homeland. The third way the prize is described in Hebrews 11 is in verse 35, where he says this, that we will rise again to a better life. We will rise again to a better life. You know, Paul, at the end of his life, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he talked about uh, himself and he said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. For Paul and all who have gone before us, finishing the race meant that they had held fast to their face, uh, held fast to their faith until their death. And unless Christ returns before I die, that is what it will mean for me. That is what it will mean for you. We hold on to our faith until we cross over into the presence of the one who saved us. But the victory lap will come when Jesus returns and the dead in Christ are raised to live eternally in God's kingdom of justice, righteousness, and peace. That's part of the prize. So we looked at the beginning of the race. Who are participants? How do you join the race? How do you get into the race? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not through anything that you do. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And we've looked at the end of the race. What's the prize that we're running this race for? So now we want to look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us. How can we run this race? How can we persevere in this race that we are participating in, and how can we receive that prize? Well, that brings us to the third necessity, and that is perseverance. Perseverance. The writer of Hebrews uses the word endurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Have any of you ever participated in any kind of running? Some, yes. Uh, when I was a freshman in high school, I was uh, six foot three, I think, and I think I weighed about 140 pounds. And I was this tall, lanky kid with these long legs. 
And uh, I went out for track, and the coach thought I would make a good long-distance runner because of my long legs. Well, I hung in there for a little while, but I was not willing to discipline myself to build up the stamina that I needed to endure in those races. I, I just couldn't do it. But I want to persevere in the race that I'm in now. The writer begins with the encouragement of this great cloud of witnesses, as we considered briefly earlier. When the race becomes difficult, it is good to remind ourselves that many, many others have faced the same obstacles and even greater obstacles and continued in their pursuit. And I think it's also important for us to remind ourselves that these witnesses were people who struggled with the same sinful nature that we do. The so-called heroes of the Bible were, as James said, men and women who are like nature to us. And they are presented to us that way in the Bible. Their sins are not glossed over. Some of them failed in big ways, but they repented and they continued in the race. There's no sin that can disqualify us once we are in the race. And that is one of the encouragements that we get from this great cloud of witnesses. Because they were in the race and they sinned greatly. Moses murdered. David, adultery and, and murder. There is no sin that can disqualify us from the race if we are truly in it. But we do need to take active, we do need to take action on our own as the writer continues on. He says that perseverance is going to require that we lay aside two things that hinder our ability to run. And the picture here is the same one that Paul uses. We've seen it in Pastor Thomas's sermons in Ephesians of laying aside. You know, Paul talks about laying aside the old man and putting on the new man. Well, this is the same kind of a picture, laying aside these two things, getting rid of these two th pieces of garments that could be weighing us down. And he talks about them. The two things he talks about are weight and sin, weight and sin. And I think that, uh, um, you know, it's important as we are running this race that we want as little weight as possible to keep us from being able to run. And I think the writer here is referring to things in life that may not be inherently sinful, but that are unnecessary and can be a distraction that keeps us for, from pursuing Christ with our whole heart. There are many distractions in this world, and they compete for our allegiance. We need to keep our focus on the finish line, and we need to lay aside those things that would distract us and keep us from that. And I'm not going to going to list any of those. I think we all know what are the things that tend to pull us away and uh, uh, get our attention elsewhere. That's the first layer of clothing that we're supposed to lay aside, those unnecessary things, though they may not be intrinsically wrong. But the second layer of clothing he describes is the sin that clings so closely. The sin that clings so closely closely. Uh, 
It's a sad reality that even as followers of Jesus Christ, that we can be so, as the New American Standard Version translated, we can be so easily entangled in sin. That's because sin presents itself to us as something good, something beneficial, something pleasurable, and we can be deceived by it. In Hebrews chapter 5, the writer admonishes us that the way that we keep from being deceived by sin is that we must become mature in our knowledge of the Word of God so that we can have our senses trained to discern good and evil. Our senses trained to discern good and evil. Remember I said earlier, God is righteous. Everything that God thinks desires and does is right and his standard never changes we must know what god says is right and then we desire and we do what is right through his power within us i think it's important to note here that the writer's emphasis on weight and sin in our lives reminds us that the biggest obstacles that we are going to face in this race are not external but internal opposition from the world can discourage us And it can slow us down in the race, but unnecessary weight and sin are much more dangerous to our perseverance in this race. And we also need to recognize that we cannot persevere in this race in our own strength. That doesn't mean that we are merely passive participants. We are called to actively participate. This is what he says, run the race that is set before us. We're we're called to participate. But we cannot persevere and we cannot reach the finish line in our own strength. In fact, we can't muster up the kind of faith that makes us participants on our own either. We talked about what that faith really looks like. We can't just muster up that faith on our own. That faith is a gift from God, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But... We want to look at this fourth necessity now. We've looked at the, at the participants. We've looked at the prize. We've looked at perseverance. How do we persevere? Well, that brings us to the perfecter of faith. The perfecter of faith. 12.2. I'm going to read that again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer here tells us, that we need to be looking to Jesus. And he calls him the founder and perfecter of faith. The word translated founder is used only four times in the New Testament, and all four times it refers to Jesus. But the other three times it's translated as prince twice by Peter. When Peter preaches about Jesus Christ in the book of Acts, he calls him the prince, once the prince of life, and the uh, second time, the prince. And then he's also, it's also translated as captain, the captain of our salvation. So really, the word founder, I think, would be better translated as leader. Leader. And most commentators believe that this is pointing to Jesus as the supreme example of faith, the leader of all those who comprise this great cloud of witnesses. We've been encouraged to, to look at these, this great cloud of witnesses, remember them, but really who we need to look at is Jesus Christ, the leader. But he is not just the leader, he is the perfecter or the finisher of faith, meaning 
that what Christ accomplished on the cross brought faith to its finished result, forgiveness of sins for all who believe. Jesus, as the finisher of our faith, is the one who makes our faith effective. It is effective because of what he accomplished on the cross. So you may ask, well, what does this have to do with our perseverance in the race and the fact that we can't persevere on our own? Well, I believe that the key here is where the writer is telling us to look. He says, uh, looking at Jesus. And where does he tell us that Jesus is? He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, in an initial reading, you may look at that and you think Jesus is king. Yes, he is king. But there are a couple of other verses that give some light to this as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul tells us this. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. And here's the key. Who also intercedes for us. In chapter 7, verse 25, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore he, Jesus, is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God, not only as the exalted king, but as our great high priest interceding on our behalf as we run the race that is set before us. He not only secured the forgiveness of our sins through his death on the cross, he has secured the final conclusion of our salvation through his high priestly intercession for us before the throne of his father. Our ability to persevere to the finish line in the race of faith is not dependent upon us, but upon our perfecter, Jesus' intercession for us. What this means is that we are not running in order to win. We are running because we've already won in Christ. All of us who have truly put our faith in Christ are running this race together. As I mentioned earlier, even though the writer is using this race metaphor to describe our pursuit of life, of of the life of faith, this race is different than earthly athletic contests in that there is not just one winner. And another key aspect is we are not competing against each other. We are called to help each other persevere in the power of the Holy Spirit through the intercession of Christ. That's why we have church. And I don't mean meeting together on Sunday morning, going to church. What I mean is the local assembly of believers who have joined themselves together to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ in proclaiming repentance for forgiveness through Christ's name. We must admonish one another to run with eager anticipation of receiving the prize. We must continually encourage one another to persevere, to lay aside unnecessary pursuits, and to lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. And we must help each other look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy of 
I love this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Do you know what the joy is that Jesus endured the cross for? Do you know what the joy is that Jesus endured the cross for? We sang about it this morning. It's you, and it's me. and all the others who put their faith in him. Hebrews 2.10 says that Jesus died for this reason, to bring many sons to glory. That was the joy that Jesus had in mind when he went to the cross. You and me, in his presence for eternity. And he is interceding for you and for me right now to ensure that we will cross that finish line. There are so many reasons to love Jesus above and beyond anything else that could we could find in this world. But this is one of the major reasons. Right now, he's interceding for us to ensure that we will cross that finish line. Let's pray. Lord, we are continually amazed by your grace. We know, we know that in and of ourselves, we would never be able to run this race to the end. And yet you will not let us fall. You will not let us fail because you love us. And you are looking forward to that day as we are, when we will all be together. And sin will no longer be a factor in our lives. We will no longer do or say or think or desire anything that would bring dishonor to you. Everything that we do say and desire will please you. And we long for that day, Lord. We look forward to it and we anticipate it with great joy ourselves. May we run this race, laying aside all of those unnecessary weights and laying aside the sin and looking to you in faith and hope for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.